Hello, everybody, and welcome back to episode 16 of Walking Down the Warwick Road. I'm Tim, as always, joined by my co-host, Pete. Pete, how are you doing? I'm very well, thanks, Tim. Looking forward to this, trying to put a bit of a spotlight on some of the uh, people we don't hear too much about. Of course, we're joined by Roger Gardner. Good to see you again. How are you? I'm very well. Uh, today's episode, we are looking at United's vital backroom men. And for a club that has sort of experienced so much glory throughout its history, we all know about the, the big players and the, and the managers that have been there at the forefront. But there were people behind the scenes, certainly, or people that at least that didn't get maybe the recognition they deserve. Why this topic? We've covered a couple of the, the managers and we intend to do that more in the future. But usually we cover the players, the great scorers, the great heroes, the great goalkeepers. But with all the success United have had over the years, I always think you never get success if you've not got a good manager. And every good manager needs a good backroom staff around him or her in the current game. Whilst the managers get publicity, they have their programme notes every match day. And of course, they're covered on TV nowadays. Uh, from all angles. We rarely hear that much about the backroom people and we wanted to just highlight them and pick for each of us to pick two who we thought were vital backroom staff. So it's not just that they had longevity of service, it's they were vital to that manager at the time and the success that United had. Every manager needs a rock but those people barely step into the, the limelight but we'd like to just highlight why they were so vital at that time in our history. And we're going to pick two each, uh, which should be eight. Then we'll do a special ninth at the end. As always, we we like to hear your thoughts and your memories. So make sure that you get in the comments. You can respond to the show. Make sure you get involved. This is certainly a show for the fans. Roger, we'll come to you first. And who is the first vital backroom man that we need to look at today? Well, I had a good long think, and, and there are so many to choose from. But I actually went for Brian Kidd, who the backroom man staff United from 1988 to 1998, so, so 10 years. I liked him because he was local to, to Manchester United. He came from the same suburb as Nobby Styles. Um, famously, of course, he won the European Cup as a youth, scoring on his 19th birthday, brought in by Ferguson pretty much um, to give him something to do. And he was promoted to assistant manager and very much led United on uh, to their ultimate success, really. And he was part of that team that, that brought home that uh, first championship win since 1967. I, I still call it the um, the championship, you know, because that's what we were trying to win all of those years. When, when he arrived at the club, the squad was ageing and it was obvious to Ferguson that something had to change. It was 20 years plus since the title and Ferguson had shipped out some of the stalwarts from Ron Atkinson's team that summer. Paul McGrath uh, and Norman Whiteside would also go not too far um, in, into the future as well. But Ferguson knew of Manchester United from what he saw of United when they toured America in the 1950s with young players. So he very much believed in, in youth and really wanted to, I think, emulate Sir Matt Busby's work. Fergie knew that, that you, you didn't develop a youth team without work, without scouts, without a really good network. And one of the first groups of players that Brian Kidd actually worked with were the first crop of Fergie's fledglings, as they were called in the 88-89 season. And for the record, that was the time when Pete was going through his laundry basket to try and find a suitable white sheet and a suitable marker pen to, to design his Get Fergie out. Because 
things were going pretty drab. But these fledglings that came to Old Trafford in the early part of 89 really breathed life into United. Sadly, really, only three of them survived to any great feat. Mark Robbins, who, uh, of course, rescued Fergie's job, if you believe it, at Nottingham Forest a year Later, Russell Beardsmore um, and Lee Sharp probably were best men. But, you know, those players didn't come to United as great players. They were certainly worked on by, by Brian Kidd. And things, you know, between January and, and March 89 were really, really looking good at Old Trafford. And we went on a cup run as far as the quarterfinal. Um, we lost to Nottingham Forest. And unfortunately, the original fledglings died a death, really, Kid had to go really back to the drawing board, but he would get involved in the class of 92, of course, which we're going to cover as well, uh, I'm sure, later on. But Brian Kidd was one of those people that recognised the quality of Paul Scholes as a youth and was persuading everybody to get the guy to come to Old Trafford. Kidd also worked with uh, Gary Neville from the age of 12, and uh, David Beckham came to Old Trafford in 1990. And he was crucial in his development as well. So sort of on the train, really, United were, were improving by, by this stage. Um, so we'd won the FA Cup. We were doing well in the Cup Winners' Cup. And then, unfortunately, um, Archie Knox, who was Ferguson's trusted assistant from his Aberdeen days, decided um, that, that he wanted to go to Rangers. So Fergie had a bit of a dilemma. So we basically turned to Brian Kidd and said, you know, can you help me with the first team for a bit, which which Kidd did. And then Ferguson asked him basically to, to become his assistant and he turned down the job. But Fergie being Fergie just wouldn't have it. And uh, Brian Kidd nonetheless became Ferguson's assistant on uh, the same day, actually, in August 1991, that um, Peter Smichael joined the club. My first image of Brian Kidd, of course, was in 68, scoring that goal in the European Cup final. But the most memorable image has to be the one of him kissing the, the pitch there as United celebrated those Steve Bruce goals that got us back into the uh, the championship race and certainly helped us continue. I just want to go through, but before I finish on Brian Kidd, really, just what period of success in that 10 years happened. You know, we won the league in 93. Uh, we stopped mentioning 67. We won the double in 94. We almost repeated it in 95. Of course, we lost at West Ham on the last day of the season. And we didn't win the FA Cup the week after against Everton. We won the double in, again in 96 up at Middlesbrough. And 97, we were champions. And uh, we got to the semi-finals of the Champions League in 1997 as well. So things were looking pretty good. And there was no reason really at all for, for a kid to leave. However, he had a bit of a fallout with Sir Alex around the summer of 1998 uh, when Fergie wanted to bring in Dwight York, which, of course, he famously did. And basically, Roy Hodgson, who was at Blackburn, got the push uh, late in 1998. They approached Kidd, who accepted the job. Um, and this sort of peeved Ferguson off a bit, I think, because Kidd had only just signed a new contract with United and he, and he wasn't absolutely clear like Archie Knox had, had been clear about wanting to leave. And it, and it left uh, quite a bitter taste, really, I think, in Fergie's mouth. And after Brian Kidd left United, he got ill with prostate cancer. And apparently, if what we read is true, Fergie didn't even ring him to offer his uh, sympathies there. So just a quick summary of Brian Kidd, who was my first choice. He worked with the class of 1992 uh, when they were in the academy. He was part of that team that won that 
all-important first Premier League title. We won two doubles under him. And I believe if, if Brian hadn't been approached to go to Blackburn, that by the way, wasn't a successful move for him, he would have been part of the team that delivered the treble. There you go, guys. That, that's my synopsis of Brian Kidd. Thank you, Roger. Roy has joined us and certainly kiddo a legend at United. Everyone knows that. And so how are you doing, Roy? I was offered thousands not to compete today, but thanks to Tim's expertise, it's, it's always a pleasure to be with, with three other professionals. We heard the check and bounce, Roy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Who, need, who needs money? Roger, that was a great summary of kiddo. And yeah. uh, of course... I was lucky enough to see Kiddo come through. He was the link with that 67 side mm. that won the, the last first mm. division title. He'd come in as a youngster. Um, and mm. I think, as you say, Fergie recognised that, that the respect he had amongst Manchester in Manchester football. And when he lost Archie Knox, Fergie, mm. at about 91, Kid, Kid was a, an obvious successor. But uh, I don't think any of us had seen that in him at first team level, how, how much he could contribute. But... When you mm. go through, as you did, what we won from 91 to 98, uh, it really set up the uh, the modern day United. I think Brian Kidd taught the players' language, yeah. you know, in, in a very Mancunian way. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why he was successful. He did yeah. a great job with a great job with the youths, of course, Brian Kidd as well. He worked really well with uh, Eric Harrison initially to mm. set up, which mm. we'll talk about later. Pete was the next vital backroom man that were. Well, uh, I've gone for my first choice is, is Tommy Cavana. When Tommy Dock arrived as United's manager in December 72, United were in turmoil at that stage. Uh, we've had our difficult times with two chairmen needing to save us, and we had a terrible disaster in 58. But behind those three, I think 72 was when I, I'd most known United in turmoil. We'd sacked the, the second manager after Busby, George Best has resigned that week. We'd lost 5-0 at Palace, the bottom club, and we sat one point away from relegation. It, it needed somebody who could sort things out. And Tommy Dock was the man, but he went right away. His first port of call was to get his old mate, uh, Tommy Cavana, uh, and he'd appointed him as first-team trainer was his official title. He could have had any title, really. He was, in essence, Doherty's right-hand man. The two Tommies had played uh, together at Preston or met up at Preston in 1949 when Doherty had come down from Celtic. In Doherty's early programme notes at Old Trafford, when he got the job in 72, he assured supporters it wasn't just an old pals act. And he described Tommy Kavanagh as a terrific motivator of players with the terrible fault of being dedicated to football. So that's what the doc thought of him at the outset. And so began an era at Old Trafford that would never have a dull moment from 72 to 77. And it was a five-year carousel ride, I guess, that, that inspired a fanatical following, uh, witnessed heartbreaking relegation, but then a rise to the top. And that laid the foundations. I said Kiddo laid the foundation for the modern-day Manchester United. But it got us back from that. A tailspin we've been in since winning the European Cup in 68. And we should not underestimate Tommy Kavanagh's role in that. When a club's in turmoil, the manager that comes in needs an absolute rock by his side. Somebody he can trust and rely upon. Uh, somebody you want by your side in wartime trenches. And Tommy Dock's rock was Tommy Cavanagh. They would need, United would need a management team 
that would be strong and determined in weathering the change that was ahead in 72. They had to get rid of some of the players who they thought now were not fit for purpose and at the same time get young players in and encourage them. The United squad, it seems, embraced Kavanagh's training methods. They warmed to his motivational skills and, and his humour. He was a hard taskmaster, but he had real humour. And Brian Greenoff said when he recalled uh, Tommy Cavana coming in, that he said, we used to come off the training ground with smiles on our faces. We had a laugh, but we'd really, really worked our socks off. Greenoff said that when you're training that hard every day, you need that humour. And Tommy Cavanagh had a knack of breaking that monotony of day-in, day-out training. Doherty's view on Tommy Cavanagh was that we made quite a great team, both extrovert, both shouting and bawling at each other and everyone. But the players had a lot of respect for Tommy Cavanagh as he knew what he was doing. Tommy Cavanagh was hard-working, he was enthusiastic, totally committed to the cause. And as a duo, him and Doherty were formidable. And the cause was to stop the rot that United found themselves in. Doherty and Kavanagh saved them from relegation in 73. And Tommy Cavanagh played a huge part in that, getting United some key wins, getting the players playing the way we, we needed to play. And we, we escaped relegation in 72-73. As well as the players taking to Tommy Cavanagh pretty quick, the Stretford end and the crowd took to Tommy Cavanagh very quick. And he used to always come off. If it was Old Trafford, he'd have to run on the pitch to see to a player. He'd always come off behind the goals at the Stretford end. And he was exalted, he was adored. You would hear the chant go up of, oh, Tommy, 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 Tommy Kavanagh. I've never known a backroom member of staff get that sort of adulation in the 60 years I've been watching United. The fans loved him and he loved the fans. He always gave a wave and a smile. At, at away grounds, that counted even more when perhaps sometimes we were really up against it. Tommy Cavanagh had no fear. He'd go on the field, treat um, uh, the player who was injured for us, come off. He'd be getting booed and harangued by the home fans. He'd just get the Stretford end going by that wave and that smile. But he could do the job on the pitch and United escaped relegation in 73, went down in 74, but came back and just blew teams away playing great attacking football, going forward with power and pace, which is the United way. When we had three games left in 75-76, United was still on some In the end, they won neither the league or the cup, but, but they finished second in both. And considering we'd been relegated two years before, it was an amazing transformation. A year later, United won the cup with Tommy Dock and Cavana playing their part, and they, they delivered. And the transformation they had made in that five years was second to none. And they were both adored by United fans near and far. Tommy Dock sadly went in 77 because of off-the-field issues. But a measure of Tommy Cavanagh's standing in football was when a very good coach called Dave Sexton came to manage United. He kept Tommy Cavanagh in that post for the four years he was there. So Tommy Cav played an important eight years at Old Trafford, delivering the goods, and we remember him fondly. So uh, there's a warm place in our hearts for Tommy Cavanagh. Brian stuff, Pete. Just a point on that, Tim. Um, of course, uh, Tommy Cavanagh, uh, no, no relation, by the way, sadly, but no relation. But um, Tommy Cavanagh also was Johnny Carey's right-hand man when uh, Notts Forest ran United very close to the 1967 league title. So, you know, he had abilities. The first time I ever saw him was playing actually for Huddersfield Town in 1955 at, at United. You know, he was a decent inside forward, yeah. hard worker. And, and Pete's 
mentions there of uh, of him were, were perfectly correct. 1972 was a very dark, dismal, dismal time. By 1977, Manchester United were rocking, and, and Tommy Cavana deserves a lot of praise for for making that happen. Brilliant stuff, Roy. We're going to stay with you. We're going to head to your first selection. Yeah, Walter Crickmer, who was a really vibe. I mean, we're talking about backroom um, people here. And everyone that uh, Roger, Tim uh, and Pete, and hopefully myself, have picked are very, very worthy of this. Um, Walter Crickmer puts a different slant on perhaps some of the others in that uh, when he joined Manchester United in 1919, after the end of the war, Manchester United then were only 17 years old as a club. Uh, and he joined United's office staff, which would be very, very uh, limited, to say the least. He was only 19 then. John Henry Davis was the chairman. Uh, and it was 1926 when he became, when Walter became club secretary. By then, United were in a very, very turbulent time um, because the great successes of 1908 to 1911, when they won the league twice and they won the FA Cup, you know, they were fading dramatically. Uh, and the death of John uh, Henry Davis in 1927, who along, in my opinion, with uh, Gibson and Harold Hardman, were without a shadow of a doubt the three greatest chairman that Manchester United ever had. But when um, Davis died sadly in 1927, that plunged the club into even more turmoil because we'd been relegated in 1922, promoted back in 1925, relegated again in 1931. By the last game of 1934, they were threatened with relegation to Division 3. You know, you just think when you look around today, Premier League to me is the first division, Championship second, and then you've got your third and fourth. But just imagine Manchester United being threatened to be relegated into the third division. You look at teams that are in there nowadays, how long would it have taken them to get out? And on the last day, they had to win at Millwall. Never an easy task. Um, And they won 2-0. And they say, as they say, after that, the rest is history. And it's a good job. There was no social media around in that period, uh, 1919 to 1939, most definitely. The period uh, from 1927 until Gibson became the chairman uh, in 1931 had these serious financial issues that had to be addressed. Walter Crickmer was the man who actually went and spoke to Gibson about coming to United as the club chairman. And the first thing Gibson did was invest £2,000, which was a heck of a lot of money in those days. And he bought everybody a turkey for Christmas. You know, Crickman was really at the hot end of, of situations with Manchester United. In that time, he also became the temporary manager in 1932 and for a season. And he repeated that in 1938. So technically, uh, and he was there when, you know, they signed Matt Busby in 1945. So from that side, through the Second World War, he was technically the manager as well. But those are just mere facts. Walter Crickmar from 1946 reverted to his primary role, that of secretary of Manchester United. And he was the, the helm of that when we won the Cup in 1948. We won three league titles in 1952, 1956 and 1957. The times of a huge crowd, but not that many all-ticket games. Um, and when they were, 
they, they had to be administered. The introduction, of course, of the European Cup in 1956 and, and the logistics involved, you know, you, you, you had to um, arrange dates by telegram because they didn't go to the, the drawer and things such as that. And I know there were some really difficult things to get over, like when they had to go to Prague and, and then, of course, to Belgrade, people, teams behind the Iron Curtain. And then, of course, um, Walter, sadly, was, was one of the 23 who perished at Belgrade. Alongside his team, his colleague, um, without a shadow of a doubt, we're talking here of a true Manchester United man. Indispensable is a long word, but in his case was perfectly fitting because when you look from that period, 1919 to 1958, two or three relegations nearly into the third division, even stepping in as manager a couple of times throughout the war, when of course, in the first three years after the war, we had to play at Main Road, then going uh, with a successful side, cup finals, league titles, then going into the unknown in Europe, all the logistics, and he was at the helm of it. That was Walter Crittmore. Brilliant stuff. Tremendous servant to the club. So I guess that brings up my first choice. I've gone for another one of Fergie's assistants in Carlos Quiroz. Now, Carlos came to the club in 2002 to replace Steve McLaren, and he really set about it upon arriving and modernizing uh, United's tactics and how they how they played in Europe. He helped bring the, the title back to Old Trafford in 2002 and 2003. We did an episode on We Want Our Trophy Back, and certainly Carlos Quiroz played a massive, massive part in that. The following summer, Beckham went, and Ronaldo came in, and he p- played a big part in bringing in Cristiano Ronaldo to United. However, that same summer, Real Madrid came knocking on the door, and Carlos left to go to Real Madrid only to return a summer later. And it was an indication of how important Kiros was to Fergie because when he left, United finished 15 points behind Arsenal uh, in the 03-04 season. Walter Smith had to come in towards the end of the season there for the run-in to assist Fergie. And so getting Carlos Kiros back for the following season was a, was a vital coup for United and certainly for Fergie. The transition in the team began its place. Again, it was Kiros that kind of really oversaw that transition and, and worked with Fergie to rebuild or recondition the team. Roy Keane left in 2005. Ruud van Nistelrooy left in 2006. Rooney had come by that point, and it was a team that was taking shape with Rooney and Ronaldo. They were trying to create more of a fluid front line with sort of inverted wingers that would sort of try to get to the byline and, and put a cross in or or deliver crosses, and this was a change that Kiros oversaw in terms of having them hopefully, you know, achieve more success in Europe and develop more of a, a, a continental style of, of football, if you will, with a fluid front line and you know inverted wingers that would cut into the middle. And we saw that with how they developed Ronaldo cutting into the middle, you know, trying to become more of a goal scorer as opposed to a facilitator. He was a, he was a tremendous tactician. He was very diligent on the training pitch. In fact, it was. Carlos Quiroz, the, the semifinal against Barcelona in 2008, who took the lead in training leading up to the game. He actually put up uh, mats all over the pitch and, you know, he wanted to and walked through uh, with with one of the United players holding a ball where he wanted the defender to be in certain situations. Gary Neville said, we've never seen that level of detail um, and tactical. Now it's that Carlos had brought to, to United and, and to the training. United won the league in 06-07. Uh, and this kicked off a, sp- a run of 
three titles on the bounce. Carlos wouldn't be there to see all see United win them, win them all, but he certainly set them up for large success through that period. He'd leave again in 2008, but they would go on to win three consecutive titles from the 06-07 season. And his vision came to fruition in that 06-07 season because Ronaldo scored 23 goals from a right wing position, which was just a tremendous haul for you know, not not a not a number nine. We look at a, a, a traditional number nine and say it'd be terrific if you know you had a player that scored twenty goals in a season as a center forward. Well, Ronaldo was doing it from from the right wing, and it just goes to show the sort of tactics that Kiros brought to United. So, as I said, they would go on to win three titles in a row, and in fact, in the 09-10 season, they only finished a point behind Chelsea, and it would have made it four in a row. So that would have been just a tremendous run of success for United over that stretch. And then if you if you point to what happened in, in Europe as well, obviously United won the Champions League in 07-08. They got to the final again the next year, and then went to the final again in 2011. So three um, finals in four years, and you could you know clearly that's that's evidence as well that Kiros's impact on the tack. Although he had, he had gone by that time, by that last final, again, left in 2008, you know, those were his, his teams that, that him and Fergie built and that Carlos was instrumental on the, on the training pitch, uh, tactically getting set up. Under five seasons of Carlos Quiroz, sorry, they won three league titles, two community shields and a Champions League. After he left, but with his sides, they would go on to win another further two Premier Leagues, two league cups, two Champions League, get to the final of the Champions League twice and two community shields. And as I said, testament to what he did um, as a number two under Fergie. Uh, before he came, they'd only won one league title, one, one major honor from 2000 and the 2000 season to the 2002-2003 uh, season when he arrived. So his impact, of course, being the transition and the playing style. I, I was going to say how very thorough that was. Tim, I learned quite a bit myself there about Carlos Queiroz. I didn't, I didn't yeah. know. Um, but yeah, he took United to the top of the world. With, yeah. with but, you know, again, Fergie here, yeah. sometimes by luck, sometimes by chance, you know, that the evolution of um, number twos from Archie Knox yeah. all the way through Kid McLaren, uh, who, was, who was also mightily successful, Carlos, uh, feeling. But you know, it, it keeps you motivated as well as a player, mustn't uh, as opposed to get nicey nicey. And uh, and I agree. I mean, a lot of the times, of course, as in as in life, you don't realise what you've got. And, uh, like uh, Pete's just mentioned, that that role of success that Carlos had, you just take for granted, don't you? And then you look back twenty years yeah. after and go, wow. Roy, we're coming back to you for your second pick. Take us, take it away. Yeah, well, this is uh, Les Olive. Um, and it's, it's a different slant again to the um, assistant managers and, uh, that we've had. Um, but Les Olive, um, a bit like Crickmark, joined United after a World War. In Les's case, it was 1947. A uh, good soul for the lad. And Les's involvement with Manchester United uh, can go seriously under the radar. He worked as Walter Crickmark's um, assistant through those years um, of success that United had after, after the Second War with uh, the 48 uh, and then 
Cup and then three league titles. And, and of course, he was the man left behind at Old Trafford uh, on the, the evening of the 6th of February 1958 when the secretary, Walter Crickmore, was no longer. And, and the, uh, the day after at the urgently convened board meeting over in Bowden at the house of Alan Gibson, um, Edwards was made uh, chairman and uh, Les Olive was made, made the secretary. Les himself, after the war and when he first joined United, uh, did have ambitions of a, of a playing role. And he, he was a real John O'Shea. He played all over the place, really did. But he settled by the late 40s as a goalkeeper. And incredibly, in 1953, United had uh, a real injury crisis around the Easter time. Uh, Jack Crompton was ill, Ray Wood was injured, and Les Olive actually was promoted and played two games over the Easter holidays of 1953 as United goal. And the first one, his debut was at Newcastle, uh, which was also Dennis Violet's debut that, that day. But then he reverted back to being the um, assistant club secretary. In that, those immediate days after um, the Munich air crash, 1958-9 season, up to and including the 61-2 league season, Les you know, settled into the role. And then at the beginning of the 62-3 season, he was certainly very visible. Um, as we signed the truly great Dennis Law, um, but but Les was 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 really involved in, in in all these major transfer dealings, and of course, that the signing of Dennis Law and the signing of Eric Cantona uh, are the two greatest signings of the many great signings United, and and um, Les was quickly the following season into action, admin wise, because we had the the bad winter of 1963 when football got virtually called off from Boxing Day 62 to March the 5th in United's case when the third round of the FA Cup was played. And then they had to play between March the 5th and the end of last Saturday in the March. They played the third round, fourth round, fifth round and the sixth round of the FA Cup in that one month. Then the semi-final, then the FA Cup, and then, of course, league titles in 65 and 67, the European Cup in 68. Again, all the admin that's involved in that, logistics this time were, were much easier than they were under Crittner. But even so, there was more all-ticket games, far more all-ticket games. When he retired, he became a director of, of Manchester United uh, and, and had the pleasures of uh, Sir Alex's times lay before him until um, his sad death uh, in 2006. Like Walter Crittmore, totally dedicated to the club, his involvement, his love of the youths as well, like Crittmore. Crittmore um, was, was very involved with the Mujaks and, and you know, this, this link of Manchester United um, from somebody at 15 until someone at, say, 35 as a player. Um, but the, the, the admin and, and those roles are, are vital. Indeed, thanks for that, Roy. We're we're headed back over to Roger and Roger's um, second selection. My second selection is that of Mike Phelan. Um, he was at United for 13 years. I've had 13 years in a couple of jobs actually, and I don't think I've achieved probably a quarter of what he achieved. Probably not even that. Um, I, I like him. 
he was promoted by Fergie. And if Fergie promotes you, then you can't be bad at what you're doing. Originally from Burnley as a player, he was in that Norwich City side that also featured Steve Bruce. And they would both become great leaders for United. He came to United in 1989 to, to shore up our midfield and he became really the voice of Fergie I think on the pitch in 89 Fergie had come on a bit bare and and we were drifting uh, and it was really good I think to have a voice of authority on the pitch particularly as Brian Robson was often injured we got involved in scraps with Arsenal that had his points deducted and things and things got a bit feisty and certainly Mike Phelan was there amongst all of that. Anyway, he left United, you know, with quite a bit of silverware, uh, went to West Brom as a player and then um, started coaching um, with, with Gary Megson um, when he was at Stockport County. When Megson got the boot from Stockport, uh, basically Sir Alex Ferguson put out the hand of friendship as a former United player for him and uh, like Brian Kidd, invited him to come in to the academy where he stayed basically for less than 12 months before he took up um, a first team uh, coaching role. I can sort of glib most of the stats I think that um, that Tim has presented from the period really um, but he was quite a thoughtful coach and, and he was a coach of the era where they were moving away from pen and paper to sort of whiteboards and screens, much more in modern thinking. And his mantra, according to, to his own materials, which you can which you can read, um, is about gaining respect, talking to players, getting their opinion and being able to relate to players in a language that they can actually understand. And so we don't all learn the same way. And I think Phelan was quick to realise you had to talk to each individual player in, in a different manner. He was Fergie on the pitch. He came to Old Trafford already with some really good experience as an assistant manager. And I put on there as well, he often spoke on behalf of Sir Alex. When um, Sir Alex fell out with the BBC circa 2000, <laughs> Mike Phelan was, was the man who often had to face the cameras. And certainly if you watch Match of the Day on a Saturday evening, you would be hearing the words of Mike Phelan um, as opposed to those of Fergie. And really, it was almost like hearing Fergie. But at this time... United squad, you know, was very different from the time of Brian Kidd. When Brian Kidd was was coaching United players, those players largely had been at United a long time, had been brought up through the ranks. There was masses of respect for authority and things like that. But the United squad that, that Phelan would be coaching had over 40 players in it. And he had to handle, you know, the likes of Van Nistelrooy, Ronaldo, Scholes, um, and of course, Wayne Rooney. I'm always reminded of, of Glenn Hoddle when, when he was an England coach. He, he had Paul Ince with him and, and they were taking free kicks on, on the field and Ince took a free kick and, and Hoddle said to him, you know, that's not good enough. And he said, what do you mean, boss? And Hoddle would take this free kick and he'd float it past David Seaman into the top corner and he'd say, that's how you curl a free kick. But he could never actually teach Paul Ince to curl the ball like he could. So Mike Phelan's job actually was improving people like Ronaldo, improving people like Van Nistelrooy, which is no mean feat, really. This was an unprecedented era of success. No assistant as part of a team is ever going to be able to reel off so much silverware. Premier League titles, 2001, 3, 7, 8, 9, 11 and 13. You know, we had a rebuild, obviously, in the middle of that period uh, that involved bringing people like Jason Parkin, Carrick, Hargreaves, Fletcher, Tevez. 
they all had to be drilled and they all had to fit into what Sir Alex's plan was. It's worth remembering, I think, as well, Jose Mourinho had joined the party halfway through all this and actually assembled a really, really good Chelsea team in his first couple of years that looked as if they were going to dominate football, especially given Roman Abramovich's money. And of course, there was the Arsenal Invincibles team that I remember Paul Scholes defeating at Villa Park in the FA Cup, by the way. So they weren't totally invincible. But I think in terms of a backroom member of staff, He's going to be the only one, I think, that, that's gone to three Champions League finals um, in four years. So that's 2008, that's 2009 and uh, 2011. Well, I've got, I've got some points for, for um, discussion here for the, for the lads. Um, and my question is, when Fergie left, should we have kept on Mike Phelan? Uh, was this David Moyes' first mistake? After all, um, David Moyes tried to coach Ferdinand. I think he should have stayed. That's my view. What do you think, guys? Yes, yes, and yes. Yeah. There was one or two, two mistakes. There. I mean, we, we've all had situations in work um, where you've got to make decisions, etc. Uh, and, and new people come around you, or you you go around new people. Uh, and without a shadow of a doubt, that is that was Moise's biggest biggest mistake. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can understand him wanting to have. Um, someone alongside him who he could totally trust, perhaps two people. But feeling, as you just said there, uh, in four years, he was assistant manager when United had reached the um, Champions League final. So unless they had personal animosity, which we wouldn't know about, I think that was a major, major mistake. Yeah, I agree, Roy. A lot of people say, you know, feeling was running the show by the time, you know, Fergie was, was thinking about retiring. and. Fergie was just prioritising what needed to be done. So, so I think it was a really a really poor oversight on, on David Moyes' part. My, my other closing comment would be, actually, amongst all the people we've talked about, Sir Alex Ferguson didn't make one bad appointment. And, and that really is amazing, to be able to continue mm. that success mm. in such a seamless way. I, I'm always reminded of Brian Clough, actually. He was similarly brilliant. But as soon as Peter Taylor left him, Brian Clough just couldn't find anybody that, that, that he gelled with the same way. And, and Nottingham Forest were never as successful again. So I think Ferguson really deserves some credit for being able to keep the ship going in a seamless direction. That's such a good point. Thanks, Roger, for that. On to Pete and for his second selection, another assistant manager. Yeah, and um, I've gone for, so I should say thanks to uh, Roger there for a very comprehensive roundup mm. of Mickey Feeling, a very low profile guy, uh, apart from when he's popping balloons. But um, <laughs> yeah. so I've, I've gone for Steve McLaren, not a long serving member of staff uh, or backroom guy. Um, he was only there for two and a bit years, but he did preside over as a backroom coach, assistant manager our greatest ever triumph, which I'll, I'll come to. As Fergie was building through it from 1986, he got Archie Knox in, got a good formula going there, as, as Roger alluded to. Every every manager needs a good right-hand person. Uh, he'd done that, lost him, got Kiddo in, and that worked, and that had stayed there for eight years. So when... Um, when Kiddo left to be a number one at Blackburn in uh, December 98, Fergie took a few weeks actually to consider who the best fit would be. I think that's one of the reasons, as Roger said, he, he didn't make any bad appointments. He took his time, he didn't dive in. But Kidd and, and Knox had been stalwarts helping Fergie text United to the back of him 
back to the top of English football. But in early 1999, United weren't just trying to get back to the top of English football. They were going for greater height. I'd said before that Tommy Kavanagh came in when United were nearly on the verge of relegation. When Steve McLaren came in 27 years later in 1999, United were halfway up football's Everett. Fergie said at the time that the job hadn't gone to interim coach Jimmy Ryan because he knew that the job called for a younger man because there's a lot more physical work involved in being a, an assistant manager, a first-team coach in 1999 than perhaps there had been in the past. Well, McLaren was 37 and he got the job by a nose um, from a certain David Moyes, I believe. So there's a sliding doors moment. Mm-hmm. McLaren had a reputation as one of the country's top coaches. It embraced a host of new ideas. It, ta- it partnered up with Jim Smith at Derby and got them back into the Premier League uh, a couple of years before 99. And he'd employed a full-time fitness trainer. He employed a sports psychologist. He used uh, a Prozone system for tracking players' every move throughout the game. Stuff that we think of as second nature now, but it wasn't there in 99. He also created preparation chambers for players to sit in before training and and introduced motivational videos and footages um, to, to aspire players. Again, a bit like Tommy Cav, Manchester United players quickly took to Steve McLaren. They liked his unerring eye for detail and how we prepared for games. Anyway, McLaren joined United on the 6th of February, a very important date in our history, but that was in 1999, and it was an away game at Notts Forest. United won that game 8-1. I think it was the biggest away win at that time in our 121-year history at the time. But apparently he was, on the, he was on the bench watching all this going on. He'd only arrived at the club that week. And he said to some of the substitutes, is it like this every match as it got to 5-1-6-1-7-1? Of course it wasn't, but it uh, it wasn't too far away from that in 1999. I think McLaren's main strengths were just his simple ability to work with players, gain their respect quickly, a modern thinker in terms of training and tactics. And he'd looked abroad uh, at other clubs, how they trained, and he'd looked into other sports such as American baseball to see how you could keep players motivated. Steve McLaren himself said there's a lot of myths around coaching, but basically it's a simple job. You've got to supply the motivation to train and practice day in, day out. We forget that really when we just watch on the match day from our seat or from our sofa. That it's just about putting that hard work in on the training pitch. Anyway, Steve McLaren's appointment was a masterstroke, according to the, the Old Trafford Insiders. He, he says himself that he came into a club that was four points ahead at the top of the league. And so he he applied the old adage, if it ain't broken, don't try and fix it. And he said he went in, just had a look at the routine, saw how things were done and kept the players on their toes. He got to know those players, their habits and the little extra things that they like doing and dislike doing. And within a few weeks, he'd settled into the role almost seamlessly from Brian Kidd's eight-year tenure. Now, McLaren was either a very lucky charm or he could walk the talk. But Manchester United months after his appointment, went on to win the Champions League, the Premier League and the FA Cup, becoming, as we all know, the first English team to win the treble. After McLaren's appointment, United didn't lose another game that season. 
In fact, they didn't lose another game for 37 matches after McLaren stepped in. His coaching and his teamwork with Sir Alex helped United retain the Premier League in 2000. And for the first time in our history, in 2001, we won back-to-back three-in-a-row league titles. Only the fourth club in history ever to do that. Now, what's telling, I think, is uh, Roger said, if Fergie appoints you, you mustn't be doing something good if you in your job. If Roy... Keen gives you a good uh, resume, then you definitely must be doing something good in your job. And Roy Keane wrote in his own biography that McLaren brought a, a different but very much his own qualities to the job. He had his technical ability and his organisation, his passing on of information to the training pitch were absolutely outstanding. He had a really open mind. Um, if McLaren heard about something new, he'd give it a try. And if it worked, they'd keep it. If it didn't, they'd ditch it. And when, sadly, his tenure came to an, an end, uh, only two and a half seasons in, by default, really, uh, two things happened. One, Fergie had said that he was going to retire in 2001 at the end of 2002, season 0102. I think McLaren read the writing on the wall that he probably wouldn't get the job. And I think other chairmen got, came sniffing around for McLaren and uh, the Middlesbrough chairman, Steve Gibson, won that race and talked McLaren to leaving Old Trafford and going to, to Middlesbrough, where they had some success. And then, obviously, onto the England job. I think if Fergie... Of course, Fergie stayed. I think if Fergie could have changed his mind earlier, McLaren would have stayed, and we may have built very much on that uh, that yeah. record. He won all three titles in his time there, McLaren, three league titles, and he won that FA Cup and that Champions League to win as the treble. So it would have been interesting to see what would have happened if McLaren had stayed on. I do think there's always a very thin but very discernible line between a good number one, a manager, and a good number two, an assistant manager or coach. Mm. Not every good coach makes a good manager and vice versa. And I think with McLaren, he's definitely a good coach. I'm not sure he could manage so well left to his own abilities. But the thing is, like a good old boomerang, given that United are in Oz at the moment, McLaren's returned to help Eric Ten Hag return United to the top of English football. So let's hope he can do it. I will take it away with finishing up with uh, someone that has had a, a, a major, massive impact on United, and that is Eric Harrison. So youth team manager from 1981 to 1998. Ron Atkinson made two important signings, and we saw Brian Robson... Um, sat at the table there signing his contract. The other important uh, signing that that, uh, Ron Atkinson made was uh, Eric Harrison. Came in 1981, saw through the likes of Norman Whiteside, Clayton Blackmore, Mark Hughes, Graham Hogg. And when Ferguson came in in 86, Harrison was was kept on. He was one of the staff members that was kept on by Fergie. Uh, And there's a famous exchange uh, between the two of them where Fergie came to see Eric Harrison and, and said, you know, he wanted players to come into the first team from the academy. And Eric Harrison named off the likes of the, certainly the club legends that we just, that I just talked about, uh, the players that came through. And Sir Alex Ferguson said, I want more. And Eric's reply was, get me more good young players into the system and I'll get them into the first team. And that he did. So he led United to uh, Youth Cup victories that, Youth set up to Youth Cup victories in 92 and 1995. And, of course, in the course of those triumphs, developed the famous class of 92. And we all know what the class of 92 went on to achieve. Both Neville brothers, David Beckham, Paul Scholes, Giggsy, Nicky Butt, as well as Robbie Savage and Keith Gillespie, 
who left United to make their own careers elsewhere. You know, Eric Harrison, you read what these lads say about him. Um, he was the mentor. You know, it wasn't just about the football. It was about preparing these kids for life or for life outside of football or, or football at a different at a different club. Um, you know, it was very much like a father figure to a lot of the lads. You know, he was hard. Uh, Clayton Blackmore tells some, some pretty famous uh, exchanges that he had with Eric Harrison. He was hard on them. At the same time, you know, they all respected him and he loved them all. And uh, when Robbie Savage was released from United without playing a, uh, a first team game for them, a letter that he still has was sent to him from Eric Harrison, encouraging him to not give up on football and to go on and, and cut his own path. They all speak as him as a, as a second father, you know, taught them the way they should speak to the kit men or canteen ladies, the way they dress, their timekeeping. He really made a massive impact on these lads' lives. And when we talk about, you know, nowadays, with the, even with the United Academy, where they talk about it's a family, it's a family uh, atmosphere, and, and we want to develop the kids for not just their footballing skills, but their character and how they conduct themselves. That was very much a part of Eric Harrison's mantra, and it was certainly something. started with, with Jimmy Murphy and, and Sir Matt with the Academy, but was certainly emphasized by Eric Harrison. And Ron Atkinson's uh, verdict on Eric Harrison was that he might never have featured in a back page headline in his life, but Eric was a coach whose contribution to United should not be underestimated. And I would agree with that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, That's our <laughs> top eight. We must apologise at this stage, just before we finish on, a, on a, a ninth, for some of the great names we've had to miss out that didn't make the, the cut. We mentioned some of them in yeah. passing, but Archie Knox, a great number two. Louis Rocker, one of the most famous men in the formation of, of Manchester United. He, he was the man that identified mm-hmm. Matt Busby as a potential manager for United. United after the war. So we may do a separate programme on Louis Rucker. Mm. Mick Brown, Jack Crompton, Joe Armstrong, Tom Curry, Burt Wally. Um, God bless yeah. them all. They served a massive part in United's history. We each chose our two. But there's one mm. man in United's history who is probably the greatest backroom man. A person that pushed United uh, to the fore in, in our darkest hour. Probably, Roy, your best position to set it up for us. Well, yeah, I, I, it's very difficult to get the, the definitive title of a man, the man who saved Manchester United after after Munich, was Jimmy Murphy, the most vital thing in Matt Busby's life. You know, they, they really were different as chalk and cheese in a lot of ways as personalities. So Matt would like to go to places to relax, like the Cromford Club, mix with the stars, where Jimmy would go down to the... Uh, to the pub uh, with a fag and a pint. And so, you know, two different personalities who'd known each other before the war, because Jimmy was a, a very good player with West Bromwich Albion, Wales. Um, so they'd locked horns when Matt was with City and Liverpool. And then, of course, Matt heard an inspirational speech Jimmy was doing to the forces and made him his first signing. And then by 1958, uh, the man who stepped fantastically, magnificently, whatever you want to use, um, to rescue the club uh, working 25 hours in a 24-hour day. But the two or three interesting stories that I, I, I've told about Jimmy. The first one was first season after the war in 1946-7. United Reserves, which Jimmy looked after, won the Central League title. And Matt said, right, who have we got in his side that we're going to put into the first team. And he said, none. Um, because those players, like the first team, had lost six, seven years of their life. 
So you're in the reserve team at 27, winning the Central League title, but you weren't really the sort of player you needed to go into that first team. And that's where they both instantly went on to this youth campaign. And of course, the one big break we had, as I say, that word luck in everyone's life at the right time is vital. Uh, it's one of the most unused four-letter four words. Um, but in 1952, the FA Youth Cup started at a perfect time for United and the crusade that Matt and Jimmy were entertaining about the youth play. And Jimmy took that on board 100%. So you Bobby Charles, you Duncan Edwards, you Eddie Coleman, all of these, Albert Scanlon, Wilf McGuinness, all of them, they talk of Jimmy Murphy. They don't talk of Samar. They talk of Jimmy Murphy because it was Jimmy who was instrumental. But I've got a lovely little story, if I have got time. I became very friendly with Harold Bratt, who sadly passed away a few years ago. Harold only played once in the first team for United, but he was a Busby babe, and he was there on that eerie morning of, the, of uh, February the 7th when the team, who was or the players that were left at Old Trafford, were in the dressing room, about 10 of them, and Harold was in that, that, that crowd. Harold remembered his first year as a youth player, and they were going over to play Huddersfield in the FA Youth Cup. Now, under Jimmy Murphy, the youth team were undefeated for five seasons. They won the first five years, but they only lost one game, and that was the semi-final um, right towards the end of that, when they'd already won the first leg 5-2 away. Um, and they were on the way to play Huddersfield, and suddenly Murphy comes along at the back, and Harold's on the bus, and he thought, oh, no, what have we done? He said, right. He said, I've got you marking this inside forward. He was six stone wet through. He's got national health spectacles on with a plaster on one of the lens. Do not let him out of your sight. And after about 10 minutes, when this inside right had scored one and laid on the second one, the arrow was glad he was on this side of the pitch and Jimmy was on the far side. Luckily, United got a goal just on half time and he went in at half time and thought, oh no. And he didn't pick on him. He just turned around and said, look, I told you, but the rest of you now, make sure this guy, whoever's the closest to him in the 46th minute, puts him out of the game. And Mark Pearson stood on his foot. He didn't break his metatarsal, but he made him very unhealthy for the second half. That guy, of course, was Dennis Law, who we tried to sign after the match. Uh, and Murphy had this knack and this man-managership, total man-managership. And what he did for Manchester United there's been great books about him, and I urge anyone out there to get all the one or two, because he was the man who saved Manchester United. He was Mr. Manchester United. And in my opinion, he meant more to Matt Busby uh, than Matt Busby necessarily needed to him. He was a man mm. among men. Thanks for that, Roy. Pete, Roger? Um, I would just add a little bit in there. Jimmy Murphy wasn't on the flight to Munich because he was managing Wales. Wales had played Israel in a World Cup qualifying. As manager of Wales, he decided to stay back. Just a little funny story there. It wasn't a group match. Wales were playing Israel, and Israel had only been formed as a state 10 years before. And controversially, as it sounds now, a lot of countries refused to play them. So they got buys through to the World Cup finals in 58, or they would have done because the teams refused to play them. FIFA said, we can't have that. Only the winners and the hosts can get to the finals without playing. And so they picked a team 
who would come the na- the closest to qualifying in the group stages to do just a kind of knockout against Israel, and that happened to be Wales. Okay, so uh, it's 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 a unique story in football uh, terms. But they played home and away. I think Wales won both legs two 0 But that's what kept Jimmy Murphy off the plane uh, to Belgrade in in 1958. But as as a man, we can only imagine how Jimmy Murphy felt on the morning of February the seventh when he came round. He woke up and realised what had happened to his his beloved players mm. and club and team and friends. And yet he had to carry on, not just with United that season and resurrect them, but he had to go to the World Cup finals in Sweden in 1958 then as manager of Wales. He had no break. You know, he was probably suffering from what would be recognised now as post-traumatic stress disorder, but he just kept going. And he kept going then through the next season and the season after for 10 years. Just what a trooper, what a man, what a person. Yes, indeed. Just one further point there. I, I had the real pleasure of, of meeting Samat one-to-one on a couple of occasions and then in company. Um, but I never met Jimmy Murphy. But I did um, correspond with him. I've still got the letter, actually. And when I wrote um, the first biography on Duncan Edwards with Ian McCartney, I wrote to him asking about his views on Duncan Edwards. And I've got a handwritten reply. And he just said, dear Roy, it's too upsetting to talk. He was the greatest, Jimmy. Mm-hmm. Um, those players, they were his babe. They were his family. They were his kids from 15 years of age. And Yeah, I, I was just going to say, really, I mean, how do you run a club the size of Manchester United without being able to see and talk to some at Busby's dealing with everybody's grief, his own grief? You know, he's keeping the show going. I mean, it, you can only try and imagine what on earth it must have been like. And and to reach the FA Cup final that season as well, you know, was a phenomenal achievement. Indeed, well put, Roger. And of course, Jimmy would carry on um, later towards the end of his tenure with United as a scout and is credited with identifying the likes of Gordon Hill and Stevie Koppel. So tremendous impacts indeed. Um, it, it, can't even put it into words. Tweet that came in uh, leading up to this, just to round out a couple more individuals that didn't get mentioned. Ken Merritt and Ken Ramsden with 40 years service at United as well. But Jimmy Murphy, tremendous place to end the show. And of course, the most vital man for sure. United, if you were going to make a hierarchy indeed. Uh, but lads, this hour has flown by. It's been another tremendous show. Thank you, everybody, that got involved on Twitter. If you want to catch up with our episodes, if you go to our Twitter handle at at Warwick Road Walk in the bio, there's a, a link where you can go to Warwick Road episodes and catch up on all the previous episodes of our podcast. We'll be back with you again next month. Thanks for tuning in.